God loves to forgive people and to save people. And when the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, there were super pious religious folks who accused him of being a friend of sinners. I'm so glad that he was, and I'm so glad he is, because he saved me in the process. And what we find in our passage this morning is a living record of Christ as a friend of sinners. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series on morality and moral excellence. In part one of our series, we addressed how to avoid moral failure by examining the life of King David. And today, Pastor Carl will outline how we can find forgiveness as we look at the life of the woman who was caught in adultery in the book of John. Today's sermon is entitled, Finding Moral Forgiveness. We will be in the book of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Please join us in John, chapter 8, verse 1 now as we begin. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you're new to the Bible, it's the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you come to the Gospel of John. If you're here for the first time, we usually go through entire books, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But we are between books right now, and many of you have asked questions that you've wanted me to answer And certainly, uh, there are some issues that God has laid on my heart that I want to address in these days. And so last week, we began a brand new series on morality. We addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure last time through King David. And this morning, through this woman caught in the very act of adultery, we want to address the subject of finding moral forgiveness. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, It is a trustworthy statement, deserves our full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God loves to forgive people and to save people. And when the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, there were super pious religious folks who accused him of being a friend of sinners. I'm so glad that he was, and I'm so glad he is, because he saved me in the process. And what we find in our passage this morning is a living record of Christ as a friend of sinners. Now, we're going to study a passage of Scripture that is quite often quoted, but very seldom preached. Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Quoted all the time, one of the most quoted verses. Yet, sadly, this passage is often ignored, and that verse is quoted out of its context. You can make the Bible mean just about anything you want it to mean if you take it out of context. So why is John writing to just tell us about a woman caught in adultery? Certainly not. When you come to the end of his book, he said many other things Jesus did in the presence of of his disciples, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might have life in his name. Every page across the Gospel of John is about Christ. And what we're studying this morning is not just about a woman taken in adultery. We're talking about God incarnate, about the Lord Jesus. When we study Nicodemus, it's not simply a record about Nicodemus. It's the record of one who came from above who can give you a new birth from above. When you study the Samaritan woman that Christ meets at a well, it's not simply the record of a woman who five times had been married and the man she was living with was not her husband either. It's the record of the one who uniquely can give you living water. 
whether it's the nobleman's son or the miracle done at Cana or the man paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me set the context for our passage so that you have the backdrop to better appreciate what's unfolding. Chapters 7 and 8 indicate that this event takes place around one of Israel's seven festivals, this particular one called the Feasts of Booths. There are four festivals that take place in the spring of the year and three that take place in the fall of the year. God uh, prescribed Passover. He prescribed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and then the Feast of uh, Weeks, or sometimes we call it Pentecost. And it's not by accident that the four spring feasts were all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, because these feasts were not just things that God wanted them to do for the fun of it. There were types, there were illustrations of what the Messiah was going to accomplish in his first coming or in his second coming. So it's not by accident that the Lord Jesus dies on Passover. He's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And 50 days later, on Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of God, the promise of the new covenant comes. There are still three feasts that have yet to be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled beginning during the time of the Great Tribulation, culminating with Christ's second coming as he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And so the Feast of Trumpets is yet to be fulfilled. The Day of Atonement, as it relates to the Jewish people, has yet to be fulfilled. And, of course, the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the context of what we're studying today, is uh, yet to be fulfilled. So some of these feasts look back at what Christ has already done, and many of them still look forward to what He is going to accomplish. And God had these feasts, and Jews still practice them today. We had scheduled our trip to Israel to go right after the fall feasts, uh, just because there are things that are closed sometimes during that time. We had to reschedule the trip uh, based on the Israeli government to May of 2022. We can still take 16 if someone's listening and they want to come. Uh, but with that, with that said, one of the reasons God had the feast was to keep the people together as a nation. Look, the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth, just as Jesus predicted in Luke 21. To the four corners of the earth. They are the only nation that have been scattered across the world that God has brought back and reestablished as a nation. And God said he would do that at the end of time. And one of the ways that God kept the Jewish people together was through these various feasts that they would practice year after year after year. And so here we are at the Feast of Booths. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll remember Deuteronomy 16, 16 said there are three feasts that were non-negotiable, that if you were a pious Jewish man, you would observe the feasts. You would come literally to the temple in Jerusalem. You might live in Jerusalem. You might live on the outskirts or somewhere else in Israel. You might live in one of the surrounding countries through the diaspora where they were spread to some of the surrounding nations. But if you were a practicing Jew, you came to Israel, and this is one of the prescribed feasts. What does that mean? It means the population of Israel would go typically from 150,000 to over a million. Sometimes Josephus said there could be as many as 2 million people who would come into the city. So this place is absolutely packed. 
And of course, the Feast of Booths looked back uh, because if you remember, for 40 years in the wilderness, they lived in tents, they lived in caves, they lived in huts of sorts. So it looked back at God's blessing and provision for 40 years, but it was also also called the Feast of Ingathering. It also was a reminder of God's goodness to provide for the nation in their day. And so it was kind of a 4th of July and Independence Day all wrapped into one. Now, with that said, if you remember in the immediate context in John 7, the Pharisees who hated the Lord Jesus wanted to have him arrested. So what do they do? They send the temple guard, the temple police, to go arrest the Lord Jesus. And they come back, and in John 7, 46, they say, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. <laughs> they go to arrest him, they hear him speak, and they're just blown away. Now, when you come to John 7 and 8, you feel like, oh, we're just in the beginning of Christ's ministry. Actually, you're six months away from the cross. When you come to John 11, the raising of Lazarus, you're about two weeks away from the cross. So John is writing with a different purpose, with a different point in view. So they come back. No one's ever preached like he's ever preached. They were just blown away, and the religious leaders are ticked. They want him captured, and not only do they want him captured, they want him murdered. And so when this doesn't work, they go to plan B, and that's what we're really looking at today. We want to begin reading in John 7 and verse 53. The feast is over, and so John writes, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you what then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, let me begin with a, a very important introduction here this morning before we step into the details of the text. Chapter 7 in verse 53 all the way through chapter 8 in verse 11 have been attacked by the critics. One more liberal translation done by liberal scholars relegate this whole section to a footnote in their translation of the Bible. Some translations uh, put it in an entirely different typeset uh, so as to imply it being an interesting story but not part of Scripture. Now, gallons of ink 
have been spilled on this particular section to prove that John did not write it, that this was added later on. I don't believe that for one skinny minute. Now, here's the issue. The issue is concerning manuscripts. Um, there's a course that I offer. It's called Bibliology. In fact, there was a couple here from Massachusetts on Wednesday night, and they told me they were taking that course. And I said, it's not for the faint-hearted. She said, I know there's 500 pages of notes. I said, that's right. Well, in one section of the course, we deal with what we call textual criticism. By textual criticism, we're not speaking of someone making fun or criticizing the Bible. But the science of textual criticism looks at different manuscripts to discern whether or not something is a scribal note or part of the original. And the translators of the King James did that. When the manuscripts they were using, they said, oh, that's clearly a scribal note. We're not going to include that. In, in our discussion here because that was not inspired. What was happening? Well, if I opened up your Bible, you probably have notes out in the margin, little things that you jotted down, maybe something that God said to you or spoke to you. Well, on that day, they did the same thing, not with copies that would typically go into the synagogue or other places, the churches, but for their own personal study. And so when they wrote a manuscript, they wrote from page to page, end to end. There were actually no even spaces between words. Your mind supplied the spaces between the words. No punctuation. Your mind supplied that. And, of course, the way Greek is written, the structure, whether it's parenthetical or question, is determined by the grammar itself. And so there would be an occasion when someone would write a note, and then if I said, hey, I heard you had, you know, John chapter 15. Do you mind if I copy it? And maybe I copied John 15 that you had, and, and then someone copied my copy, and now there's a whole family of manuscripts with this person's note in it. Now, take all the air out of the balloon. Let me be clear here. Of the 20,000 lines of Scripture in the New Testament, what is under debate are 40 lines or about 400 words. That represents, according to Bruce Metzger, the great Greek scholar of the 20th century, about one one-thousandth of the New Testament. And the small portion that is under debate, typically, if it's not said in this verse, it's said over here. And that's why someone would maybe add that word or that phrase because they knew this text over here so well, and they put it in as a, a note for themselves. It affects nothing doctrinally. And, and now, if you have the New American Standard, you will notice that uh, this section is in brackets. You see it in 753 all the way through 811. If you have the NIV 84 in your hand, it, it sets it apart from the rest of the gospel. If you're using the King James, there's no brackets. Why? Because when the King James was translated in 1611, the manuscript issue was not an issue at that time. In fact, when they were writing the book of Revelation, for instance, they came to the end of Revelation, and they didn't have any Greek manuscripts. So they went to the Latin Vulgate and translated it into Greek and then put it into English. 
And so if you read the original preface to the 1611 King James Bible, they'll say that, you know, there were some manuscript challenges. Uh, We were not certain on the translation of some words because, remember, the Bible for a thousand years had basically been in Latin. And the whole idea of putting it into the language of the people and not just the scholar was a, a new kind of thing. Well, since the King James was written, we have found thousands of manuscripts through the whole archaeological process. So the NASB puts it in brackets not because they don't think it's part of the original. No, they believe it's part of the Scripture, but they put it in brackets just to indicate that in some old manuscripts, it's not there. Now, with that said, why even make this an issue, Pastor Carl? Because someone's going to make it an issue to you. Um, you will go to some commentaries that you'll buy in a Christian bookstore, and they just skip over this section. They end at chapter 7, and then they pick up their commentary in 812. I have a number of commentaries. I have maybe 40 commentaries in the Gospel of John. I have a half a dozen that are like that in my library. They, they don't even address it. Now, the writers of the New American Standard saw this as part of the original. So let me go down one more rabbit trail. When we speak of the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is without error, understand that the people who say the Bible has mistakes in it are not saying it over these 400 words in the New Testament. They're saying it from the venue and from the perspective that because sinful people fallen people, because we're all fallen from Adam, wrote the Scripture, that some of their sinful prejudices and foibles bled through the pages of Scripture. And so that's why we have mainline denominations who are saying, well, you know, Paul was just a homophobe. That's why he wrote against homosexuality. And so when we're speaking about inerrancy, it's not over an issue like that, because even the most liberal scholars know that there's no other book of antiquity that has the kind of manuscript evidence and documentation that the Scriptures have. So I responded. I don't usually ever respond. The only time I read usually um, what they call Twitter, I called it Instagram last week, show you how in tune I am, is, you know, late at night, usually to get my blood pressure up before I go to bed. And, and uh, you know, I read this diatribe about this person who came out as gay, a so-called Christian leader, and, and Andy Stanley commended him, and we're behind you, and we're just excited for you and what God has for you. Didn't rebuke him, didn't say, hey, you should repent, and God can forgive you, and all these different people like that. And so I made some comments, some gracious, loving comments that it's still sin. God loves you. He can forgive you, change you, but it's sin. And people came, oh, the Bible's been translated so many times, and this and that. You can't trust it, and da-da-da-da-da-da. It's all nonsense. And I have a little booklet. You can get it in the bookstore, How to Prove the Bible is True. And one of the things that we look at is how God preserved His Word. Now, why do I believe, why do the authors of the New American Standard, why do most evangelical Christians around the world believe that this is part of Scripture? I could give you 11 reasons. I'm going to give you six this morning. You might want to jot it down. Maybe they will be helpful to you. First and foremost, this section fits the flow of the Gospel of John. The events in chapter 7 take place in the temple 
He's still here in the temple when this incident takes place. And when the incident is over, he's still in the temple. So it flows out of chapter 7. This incident of a woman caught in adultery is really an illustration of what he just taught in John 7, 24. There he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So it fits perfectly what he has been teaching in 724. This is an illustration of what he has just taught. In addition, right after he instructs this woman to sin no more, he gives a sermon. We call it the light of the world discourse. I am the light of the world. And him who dispels darkness perfectly fits what he calls this woman to do. Perfect parallel to what has been going on. And I might note, too, that this chapter opens with a group of people who want to stone a sinful woman, and the chapter ends with the same group of people who want to stone the sinless Son of God. And so if John went from 752 to 812, there's this just abrupt transition this is part of the original. It perfectly fits the flow. Now, there's four reasons tucked into one. Let me give you a second reason. The second reason is from a third century argument. There was a book known as Apostolic Constitutions. And it was used by pastors, among other things, like a pastoral manual. And this was evidence for exercising church discipline. They cited this. Sadly, on Tuesday, I'm going to begin the issue of church discipline with a brother in our church. If your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take him to the church. Breaking his marriage vows, caught in adultery, and now waving the flag. And so in Apostolic Constitutions, which is written in the 200s, the third century, they cite this as an example. Remember, they're far closer to the original than any of us are. Um, in addition, third, there's the church fathers who reference it. There's guys like Jerome and Ambrose. And so after the apostles died, there are leaders in the church. They're not called apostles because there are no apostles, but those that Christ personally selected who saw him in his resurrected body. And if those things were true, then there would be signs, wonders, and miracles that would confirm it. The leadership after that were called church fathers. And they teach this section of Scripture as part of the original as authentic. Fourth, these verses don't, of course, violate any other Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if there was something taught in this section of Scripture that was contrary to what God had revealed elsewhere, you might have grounds. Fifth, what we write here, again, corroborates and it substantiates other portions of Scripture. Christ is a friend of sinners. He came to forgive people. And that certainly fits it. Sixth, the writing style. John has a certain vocabulary. I understand the Bible was not dictated. Maybe in a few small places you could say it was, a few paragraphs. But the Bible was not dictated. What God did is he worked through the personalities of Peter or John or Luke or John, and he moved them along to write the Scriptures. And that's why Jeremiah's style is different from Daniel. And Moses' style on the Torah is different from Malachi. Malachi. 
And that's why when you read Peter and Luke, they both have their own vocabulary. John writes with the simplest Greek vocabulary, but in the most profound style. This is John all the way through. This is his vocabulary. And it fits the the process that he uses all the way through the Gospel of John. For instance, in chapter 5, there's an issue of healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. What happens? A sermon to follow. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 20,000, 5,000 heads of household. What happens? A sermon to follow. He's the only one who gives that sermon, records it, John, because this is John's style. In chapter 8, there's this woman caught in adultery. What follows? The light of the world discourse. And so the incident here in verses 1 through 11 uh, fits the pattern of John all the way through. Augustine, he's born in 354 AD. We typically call him St. Augustine. But I do that sometimes with reservation because remember, if St. Augustine is a saint, I'm a saint too. Because a saint in the New Testament is any person who's received Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, the Catholics like to put that title in front of him. I prefer to just call him Augustine. But Augustine argued, no, this was part of the original, but some weak-in-faith husband took it out because they thought that this might be a grounds for which a woman might go and commit adultery and then uh, use this passage as a basis for forgiveness. Now, he lives a lot closer to the original, and I would prefer what a guy like that might say than some 21st century critic. It's possible, I suppose, that you had some legalists who didn't want it in there, and so he left it out, and then his manuscripts were copied, and those in turn. But understand, this is an issue that Jesus addresses throughout the Gospels. Adultery is offensive to God. And God deals in a straightforward way with adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Paul wrote these words, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you put above God. It might be an object. It might be greed. Paul says greed is idolatry in Colossians nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he goes on to say, and such were some of you. God can forgive anyone. But if, say, homosexuality and adultery are not sins, then there's no need for forgiveness. It's just part of life. The writer of the Hebrews says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So adulterer, adultery matters to God, and we'll see this morning that this text in no way mitigates against what God has written, and God is wanting and willing to forgive adulteries. And so with that said, Christ is not condoning sin like the weak in faith husband might have argued, as Augustine said. He actually addresses this sin. He deals with it in a straightforward way. He doesn't excuse what this woman has done. To listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
Also remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Finding Moral Forgiveness. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Join us tomorrow for part two of our series on finding moral forgiveness. Join us then as we continue to search the scriptures.